so today we're talking to Malcolm. Hi, Malcolm. Hello. Uh, Malcolm is a technical director at Juxt, and if you didn't hear already, Juxt created a database called Crux, uh, so you should probably check it out. Today we're not going to talk about Crux, we're going to talk about web development. And uh, probably it's not very re super related to Clojure, even though probably we'll talk about Clojure a bit. But in general, if you're looking for understanding of web development, uh, this episode should be a good uh, go-to, if you will. So when we talk about web development, Malcolm, uh, what will be the first, well, I don't know, layer, if you will, to start? Mm. Yeah, the first, I mean, we're talking about building on the web. And the web is something that uh, used to be ubiquitous just only in the consumer area. And now, you know, there were there were a lot of people building applications in other protocols in banking and finance and organizations. And uh, then over the last few years, I would say the last decade, there has been a real push to get web APIs and web technologies inside organizations. And nowadays, that is the way that people build APIs. So it's become... Uh, a kind of uh, auto ran to something that is completely uh, dominates uh, intranets or internets or you know whatever you uh, dominates or, or, um, application and system development in organizations. Mm -hmm. And um, so, if someone would like to understand um, how our, are those applications built, uh, what will we say? Well, the. Uh, the browser, when it connects, to, if you're, you're writing a web application, you're typically talking about a browser, but they're called user agents. And they connect to uh, through TCP sockets to a, a, a web server and then send a request, which will have potentially a, a method and a URL, which defines, which identifies a resource. And that resource can be anywhere on the internet. And the resource then responds with a response. And it's a single request, single response flow, usually. Uh, and then the, conne right. the connection can be then terminated or the connection might be kept alive for subsequent requested requests. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the word API. Uh, so what is that? So uh, an application programming interface is really a way of a machine trying to achieve a goal. Uh, just as a human would be trying to achieve a goal from an e-commerce website, trying to buy some nappies for their child, you might want to do the same uh, as a machine. So that the idea of an API is that it allows machines to achieve goals uh, driven by perhaps programmers or some AI or something. That there'll be some um, client code there that will determine how to achieve that goal and the services will provide them the facilities to uh, enable them to do so. Mm -hmm. And uh, what would be the, the, I don't know, best way to build an API? Are there any standards or anything anything that we should follow? So, yeah, I mean, if we could look a little bit at the history of APIs. Um, uh, mm -hmm. API development has been around for as long as uh, networks, uh, in a way, or at least systems have been communicating over networks and in the very early days people would uh, do remote procedure calls which would be just sending the name of a function over a socket uh, connecting to a machine and then saying invoke this and return me some results and over a period of time because there were multiple languages involved um, and different protocols eventually certain um, certain standards got established. Uh, uh, one famous one was Corba, but there was also other ones uh, from Microsoft called DCOM. Um, and they established uh, these interfaces, which they would define in a DSL, a domain-specific language. So they would be uh, the, uh, the grouped by the term interface definition languages, um, IDLs. Um, and they, they would establish a contract between a client and a server. Um, and then the that was really the mode of writing distributed applications up until around 94, 95, 96, when the, the web, uh, uh, which kind of spilled into the mainstream. And then people started to talk about how do we uh, um, copy, well, how do we move APIs into this kind of new paradigm of browsers and web servers? 
so that's really where web APIs have come from. Is kind of the it's a, it's a long tradition of trying to get computers to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Right. So in this way, uh, we sort of uh, separate the technology from uh, how could I how could I phrase this uh, from like specification how this should work so that later you can just change the technology underneath it but still have the same contracts. Yeah, yeah. That's the yeah. That's the um, the beauty of having a, an interface defined in a in a neutral language, and is that you no longer have to write it in a particular in a particular language. And actually, one of the goals behind uh, Corba, which was a kind of an early API variant, was really to define uh, language neutral structures data structures and language neutral verbs or or function calls um, which could be described and, and implemented in in any language uh, uh, you like so that was already established before the web came out and the web was really uh, the the http protocol was written in a way that uh, allowed anyone to write a, a server or a client in any language although at the time it would be mostly c and c plus plus though those are the dominant languages but there were um java came out in 1995 and there was mm -hmm. a whole preponderance of different languages that that wanted to talk on the web like ruby and python and and so the fact that http exists it's it's always been um a uh, it's always been a goal of the internet designers to ensure that they define the data structures in the protocols between the endpoints so the endpoints themselves could be incredibly diverse. And, and that's always been the, the kind of the hallmark of the internet. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, is this, uh, what is this protocol that we should uh, oblige with that so that allows us to talk uh, between different servers and the clients and the browsers. Yeah, so the, the protocol is uh, the hypertext transport protocol. And mm -hmm. uh, actually, I think that's what it is. It's so often that you say HTTP without knowing what it is. Everybody's heard of HTTP mm -hmm. because of right. you see it on buses and everywhere. So it it's uh, very much in the popular uh, culture. But uh, HTTP is the, you know, the, has become certainly the lingua franca of uh, of machine to machine interaction uh, between uh, on the internet uh, on the web, um, but it's certainly now becoming very much the the language of, of the protocol of microservices of uh, you know it has um, although there are a number of other uh, possible new approaches now HTTP is so established now as the the glue. Uh, binds systems together. So what distinguishes other interfaces from web APIs? Yeah, well, the, the web established early on a, a set of semantics of a set of methods, uh, get and post being the first uh, two, and then they added later on put, delete, head, and a few others. Now, the, the, the significance of this is that these uh, in, in early interface definitions languages, the semantics of these methods or what they mean would be up to the implementers of the applications or the services. Um, and then there could be anything. But in the, the web, they had already created this ecosystem that was hugely scalable. And the way that they did that was providing things like caching. Um, and caching can only work if you know a certain, um, you know, know that resources are cacheable. And so they mm -hmm. they said that well, the semantics of get was were cacheable. You could retrieve uh, you could retrieve some state from a server, and you could cache it for a period of time up to the protocol. But um, you couldn't do that with post. Uh, that would be something you wouldn't cache. Now, because of these were almost the laws of the web, it meant that you could create things like proxies to speed up the and, and, and caches and things that would um, dramatically speed up the scale uh, the, the web but also the scalability of the web um, was was based on these properties so they don't want to just get away with them uh, they wanted to define a few more and the defining the semantics in the specification itself rather than having application developers decide what these things meant was was really a, a fundamental decision of the web and the reason why it scales mm -hmm. 
Um, so the, the web APIs really have to leverage these methods, and that's the you know a limitation. Um, the authors of services and, and applications uh, don't really get to create new ones, although that is possible. You don't see it very often, so they have to shoehorn their application into. Uh, what these verbs mean, and and you you see applications might just use get and post, uh, or or maybe put and delete if they're they're kind of trying to to uh, edit things on servers. But um, by and large, that is one of the bigger constraints that uh, the the web API brought to application development. Right. Uh, so we touch base mainly up most of those. So like get, of course, you retrieve the data from the server. Post, you just send something to the server with an, like an update. Put, probably you have an existing resource and you just want to modify it. Delete, of course, you delete it. What about head? Well, yeah, head is uh, head is really doing a get, but without asking for the the get body so it's really to it's almost a way of getting the metadata of a resource which are contained in the headers so head sort of means give me the headers of a resource uh, but it's very much tied to the same semantics of, of get it really should give you the same headers as you would have got with get um, and it also means that you can so sometimes you want to know the, the whether um, you know what the what the latest version of a, a resource is, or whether you know your cache is up to date, and so on. And it, it means that the the server doesn't have to regenerate the whole body um, in order to serve as a head. So when we build those uh, those servers that should uh, respond to those HTTP methods, like get, post, put, delete, um, how are they built on the server side? Right. So um, these methods pertain to a given resource and this resource has to live somewhere and so the the problem is where to find the resource so um, we need some mechanism to be able to identify resources and that identifier also has to be a locator it has to have all the knowledge within it to tell us like the, the address of where to go to send those methods uh, so what we do is um, the the user agent or, or the browser will mm -hmm. uh, use a URI and it will break down that URI into a number of components. One is the the, the scheme, which is tells it whether to use HTTP or HTTPS or some other protocol. Um, the next one in HTTP would be the the host name and and, and potentially uh, a username to log in as. Um, if that's necessary, uh, and then a port number, and then the rest of that would be um, the path. So having located the host name on the internet, the DNS system takes over and it is able to kind of find the port as well. So you've, you're actually targeting um, a machine with a port number, and that usually tells the operating system to route it to an application. So we, we've, we've hit an application um, uh, on the server side and now the final bit of the resource is the path and potentially any fragments or and, and query strings on the back of that and all of that information uh, plus potentially some uh, request headers is should be enough to to tell the the service um, what particular resource you're targeting and uh, um, yeah so that's what routing is about it, it, it's when we talk about routing there's two parts of routing there's routing on the internet which is kind of to like at, uh, is what routers do with at um, so the IP address format allows us to route to a particular machine and then the second part of routing that pertains to HTTP is once we found that machine and found, found that service what virtual resource is identified by that URI because the the, the resource doesn't necessarily target an application it could just target this virtual thing like today's weather or that file or that image on the server so it, it really is a, a kind of um, a, a, an address inside the application to find this kind of fictional thing this logical idea of a resource mm -hmm. Right. So for example, if we go amazon.com slash products, let's say we get the list of all the products. And uh, when we do that, how do we know that, you know, if there is any error on the server or if there is, you know, some response positive coming back, uh, what's the way we, we know we can get the resource from there? Yeah. So when we send a, a method, each of these methods have some defined meanings and the, the specification mm -hmm. says that if something goes wrong, for example, if um, the, the resource uh, couldn't be found, then return a 404. Everybody's heard of a you know 404 not found error. Uh, so there is a specific number of these errors that are very 
that are encoded in specifications, which allow uh, the uh, everything in the web ecosystem to to be able to recover potentially and to know what to do next. So, should you retry, maybe, or would should you? Um, uh, should you um, wait a few minutes before you try again, or, or should you give up, or should you go somewhere else? I mean, there's uh, so all of those strategies of coping with an error are kind of built into the semantics of the error code. Right. So we have the hundreds, the two hundreds, three hundreds, four hundreds, and five hundreds. Yeah. Uh, can we dive a bit inside those? Yeah. So these were kind of copied from uh, FTP, I think, or maybe previous protocols, um, where, uh, typically hundred, 100 was around, uh, connection errors. 200 would be around for happy path. Okay. Uh, anything starting with a three would be okay, but you need to go over somewhere else. So redirects, mm-hmm. um, uh, 400 would always be saying no, that that's a bad request. Um, in some, you know, it's some client error and the 500s would be, it's a server error. Something's gone wrong on the server side. It's not your fault. Right. Uh, and then when we send those requests and Nasumig, we get, I don't know. Okay. So it's like 200. Uh, we would also sometimes get from the server response in, we could get an HTML, we could get a plain text. Maybe we can get uh, JSON on, in the case of closure, we could get Eden, uh, so this would be the MIME types, um, and I know there's plenty of those. Yeah, uh, these are these are good. So a resource is a, a logical concept. It doesn't really have any data associated with it. Is a is a kind of a platonic thing, um, and the the state that it has has to be communicated in somehow. And so the the state of a resource is communicated through this thing called a representation, which is sort of the format, the data format that that data that that represents that uh, resource's current state. So representations can be for, formatted in JSON, uh, you know, Eden, XML, CSV, um, all kinds of things. It could be plain text. Um, whatever you, whatever that resource decides that it can, w- which formats that that resource's state can be represented as, and it could be just one representation for a resource, but it could be many. Mm-hmm. Um, so after we have all of this, so on the server, we have, uh, implemented how our applications should handle different requests and different routes for specific resources. Yeah. Uh, we respond with a code like 200, and then we also specify in the header, the MIME type, uh, how can we, uh, assure that, you know, the applications that or the, um, the interface that we are building is, uh, is, well, it's stable and maybe it's maybe not changing how we can assure that people using our application that we are not breaking them well well there's really kind of a the different approaches to doing versioning or not breaking clients that the whole idea of the web is to not break that is kind of the um uh, one of the design goals of the internet is not to break it's to survive nuclear attack so the web inherits this and it it says well it would be um it would be a really poor experience if every time you went to a website some some breakage somewhere on the web would mean that you know you couldn't connect or you know you got the wrong page back so this not don't you know non-breaking aspect of the web is, is super important so the the first approach to versioning is that you can uh decide uh, not to not to make any changes at all. Um, mm-hmm. the, the second might be that when you when you do make a change, let's say you go from um, you've you've got a nice customer resource and you're providing some JSON that reflects a customer resource, and and you decide right that that is going to be version one, and for some reason changes requirements the customer is defined in a different way. You maybe you support multiple addresses or, or something. You you produce version two of that customer data format. And um, what the web what HTTP allows you to do is for the server to announce which version it is able to support. So it might decide, well, I can only support version two now of this customer record. And um, the clients that would have been written to uh, interact with services um, might might have been written for customer version one, um, and then they can negotiate uh, which 
if they have a shared version that they can communicate in. Uh, so the customer, the client might say, right, I only, I only know how to um, support version uh, read and process version one of the customer record, and a server that says, well, I only support version two. Those two systems wouldn't be able to talk to each other uh, and share information. So typically, a server might say, well, actually, I'll carry on supporting version one, just because we know that it's going to be potentially a few months or years before everybody upgrades to this latest and greatest version of the customer. So servers typically can support multiple versions, which allows a little bit springiness in the web. It allows clients to have um, multiple, uh, you know, enough time to upgrade to the latest. So rather than breaking everybody, um, we know that there needs to be a little bit of spongy, you know, fungibility and and time over decades for people to evolve their systems and update them. Uh, Because often people are talking between organizations and you might, one deadline in one organization doesn't, um, doesn't determine other deadlines in other organizations. So this is a real problem when you span uh, span countries or regions, organizations. So you need to have this this sponginess built into the protocol. Mm-hmm. So we either add, we never remove, or we version. Yeah, that's right. And we do we do also have strategies, and it's certainly something that's very prevalent in the closure community of preserving compatibility even within the same sort of version by by owning adding fields and and so to allow clients of the previous version still to work so we we still want that quality um but if we ever need to make a fundamental change uh we we can still do that through the through um the exchange of different versions of media types now what i've just described is only one and protect possibly the rest way of doing versioning, which is described by Roy Fielding and a few others. And this is really a way of versioning which um, assumes and is predicated by you having this idea of content negotiation built into your clients and servers. And, and not every web framework and web API tool uh, supports content negotiation and not every service or team will decide to use it as a so um, it, in these contexts there there might be much more brittle services and different ways of not breaking clients that might be because your clients aren't in other organizations then might be uh, you might be providing a microservice just to your neighboring teams and you're able to call them up or send them an email and tell them when your service is going to upgrade to the latest version. So you might have other ways of keeping them not breaking. Mm-hmm. Right. So, but when we talk about some kind of public APIs, let's say, I don't know, uh, GitHub API or Stripe API, uh, what will be the, so what's the strategy in general for versioning APIs? Well, there isn't really a, a, a strategy in a, in general, there are other competing strategies for versioning APIs. One approach is to version a whole set of new resources by changing the URI. So convert, putting, embedding the version number in the URL. Uh, I think that's what GitHub do. Uh, but that um, that kind of means that you have to support all the different versions for which you've got clients out there, and and so you have to, uh, to you have to eventually deprecate old versions, and that potentially is uh uh it, it doesn't allow um clients to go to the same url and then to kind of mediate what kind of version they're on do you have to you have to bring up a whole set of uh different resources on a per version basis but sometimes that's you know that's sometimes that's what you want um and and, and the if you're servicing a big application with lots and lots of different routes then um you know that that's often the way to go. So when you also uh, research APIs, uh, you also hear a lot of people saying you should build RESTful APIs and REST APIs. So what is that about? Yeah, that, well, so REST is an acronym that stands for representation, representational state transfer, and we talked about representations uh, being uh, you know the the state of each resource um, uh, before. The, what people really um, mean by rest uh, 
it dep- depends from kind of uh, where you're coming from. There's all these words like restful and restish and street rest and, and so on. But re- rest comes from a doctoral uh, dissertation written by Roy Fielding, who was one of the authors of the HGP specification. So he he retrospectively kind of worked out what was so good about the web and put that into his thesis and kind of figured out what the architectural patterns that actually enabled all these qualities of the web and he wrote it up in a in a paper that you can still download today and uh, explained it in rest in terms of a set of these things called architectural constraints um, but really what rest is meant to be and you know it's a much more kind of informal definition is kind of you know how you don't have to teach your mum how to use facebook every time they change it right? they the the visual cues are there in websites to enable them to evolve and to bring their user community along with them. Um, and they do that very successfully. So uh, otherwise, we'd all be using websites as they were in 1995 because nobody would be able to change them. So that that obviously hasn't happened. Things have been improved. Everybody still knows how to use the web. So the idea of REST is wouldn't that be a, the, the right way to go about evolvability between machines? Now, machines don't have brains so they can't and they don't understand language so much and those sort of visual cues they don't have eyes so they don't they kind of don't respond to the same stimuli what they need is Mm -hmm. hard data in well-known locations in data structures or in formats Um, but apart from that there's no reason why a machine can't uh, achieve a goal uh, might be to to buy some nappies on an e-commerce website, or it might be to um, do a banking transaction um, through an API, or well, essentially just through doing web requests and responses, um, without ha- and following the same uh, cues without having to have this kind of rigid, brittle interface definition that they have to follow. Um, so the idea that you can write some code and it would still work in many years' time, even though the website or the web API has evolved. You wouldn't have to keep on going back and updating your code every single time the interface slightly changed. And so this is a concept of evolvability, which is at the very, very heart of REST. And um, sort of the kind of REST is really designed for situations where you don't have control of every endpoint, um, which is common on the internet. You might only have control of a server, but you don't know or if you, you have an API, you don't know anyone in the world could be contacting that public API and you don't you can't go and crack the whip and tell them all to upgrade um, at a certain time. Well, you can just by kind of um, withdrawing your service and, 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 and breaking, breaking every single client. But that, that is typically not a, a good approach for you know, successful businesses. So you, you want to be able to survive, keep your service up and running for as long as possible, uh, even if that means coping with older clients. How does REST work actually in practice? So we, we said, we t- talked about the idea of REST being that you can, uh, a machine should be able to take some uh, cues and clues from the service itself. And so how that really works in practice is that the uh, a machine would go to the service of another machine and ask for you know the, the root document. They would go to the root um, uh, resource. So they might only know the host name and that might just be Facebook and they, okay, they're going to navigate Facebook and they're going to try and pick up some news from the newsfeed. And they go to Facebook and they download a document that can be understood by a machine. And that mm-hmm. document might say, well, this is where the newsfeed is. And it might have, it, it points to a URL and that is a new URL. It might not have been the same URL as last week, but um, the, uh, the client has been coded to follow uh, uh, to know that the news feed isn't on a particular URL, but it, the news feed is always in this place in the data document or is always tagged with a particular tag or something. So it was able to extract that URL and then do another request to the news feed. So that's a way that the um, a client can be coded once, but still be a, very adaptive and evolve to uh, allow Facebook to change their locations of their newsfeed and everything else, but still allows a client to get to the newsfeed. Now that mm-hmm. um, that means that uh, the, the links uh, are 
have to be followed. And and I I, I liken this to uh, the the dynamic nature of this is much more like following uh, a route plan to get from uh, one city to another city. You have two choices. You could take a map with you, and you can um, uh, you can follow follow a kind of uh, a map of directions, um, mm-hmm. or you can follow the signposts. Now, the advantage to following the signposts is that it means that if you can, um, if there are any diversions, if there's a, a road closure and you get diverted, then you can still follow the signposts and still get to your destination. Whereas if ever you've been in a car and you're following a map and then suddenly you're, you know, you've written out your route plan and suddenly there's a, a road closure and a diversion, you suddenly panic because now you're no longer on your plan and you're no longer on your, on your map. Mm-hmm. And you have to then reroute and figure out. Um, now, uh, it also means that that map is a very static document and you probably have to buy a new one every year that, uh, and um, becomes out of date. Countries create new roads and, 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 and so on. So the, uh, the analogy is that in rest, it's much more like you know that you're heading to a particular city and you're going to follow the signs and you know how to read road signs and you know how to read diversions and you teach uh, a kind of an auto, uh, a, a car, a driverless car system, how to read road signs and it can navigate to the city and survive road closures and be able to, go, you know, be able to uh, survive uh, things that happen. Mm-hmm. Right. So in essence, would it make sense to say that actually the only URI you would have to know would be the root of the API and from there you should take, you should have all of the resources that are available from there? That's ex- exactly right. Yeah. You should just know a few bits of data, like the, the where to go for the very first request. And then you should have a, a bunch of rules in your code that, that tell you what to do in certain circumstances. And that is, that's how... Uh, what we call hypermedia APIs, that's how they are coded. And there are a few examples of hypermedia APIs, although it requires so much adherence to the HTTP specification, uh, and uh, that in itself is quite hard uh, to achieve. And most programming libraries for doing web APIs fall quite a long way short of providing all the things you need, all the support you need to give those clues to those clients and those mm-hmm. that I talked about. So um, it really is quite a, um, a an undertaking to write a hypermedia API from scratch. One of the things that can help you is if your router library, if you're, if we're talking about now, you know, building web services, um, if your router library is able to be quite flexible in terms of being able to create URIs in the formats of your responses. So if you can generate URIs, um, because the trouble with, if you make changes to where your resources live, uh, you have this problem of breaking links. If you've mm-hmm. hard coded all the links to the, that, uh, old location and then you change that location or most of your services are offering up broken links so you have to have a way of very nimbly and, and quickly uh, changing to the new location and making sure that all the links are are pointing to the right place mm-hmm. um, so that would be one uh, example of some support that a library would give you um, so what are the alternatives uh, to hypermedia APIs? So uh, an alternative is that you follow more the interface definition style where you define all of your resources up front. And there are documentation formats that are popular for doing that. A very, I think the most popular by far is Swagger or it's now called OpenAPI. But there were things in the past called uh, Blueprint and, and RAML and, and uh, you know more ad hoc ways of just writing up documentation with all of the links, all of your, the resources and their locations uh, at a particular point in time. So what is Swagger? So Swagger is a, um, uh, Swagger is a, a number of things. It is a f- standard for describing uh, uh, a, a definition of a, of a set of interfaces, set of web services um, with their roots, with the, the methods that they support, with the content types that they will produce and with status codes that they will generate. So it is a, it's a more brittle than hypermedia APIs, but it's, it's very popular because uh, it's very much the case today that people are moving, still moving en masse towards this kind of style of 
writing web APIs and people want to divide the work into teams and they naturally, those teams need to communicate and they need to agree up front what uh, code they're going to write. So they need to have some kind of some kind of specification to get on with. And so uh, Open API and others allow you to write those that specification up front before you've written any code. Uh, so you, you can write it in YAML or JSON and you can uh, publish it in Git and you can say, well, okay, that is the interface we're going to agree to and clients and servers can kind of be written in parallel based on that agreement. And if the, if the standard doesn't work, then you can tweak it and you can get together in meetings and you can agree. And it's, it's the kind of the agreed consensus of what the interface looks like. Mm -hmm. And it's very common when you are in an organization where you can control both endpoints. So Swagger really comes into its own when you are in a position to define a contract up front and you can have, uh, you, you, you can, um, Recommunicate if you need to make substantial changes. You can recommunicate re to every client of that API that you're going to change on a certain date, and they can you can guarantee that they can all change. It isn't so appropriate for uh, uh, where you only control the service if you want to make changes uh, every so often. You want to continually evolve the service, um, unless it's stable, then it's, it's probably not a good choice for things where you, you just want to produce an internet service. So also, as we are building those open APIs and the REST APIs and using the Swagger, there are also some problems uh, with APIs and uh, there is a new technology, uh, or maybe not so new right now, but uh, which has a lot of hype, which is GraphQL. So what does the GraphQL try to do? Yeah, GraphQL was a response to a problem that's, that's more keenly felt where you have low bandwidth communication and you're, um, if you have to talk to many, many resources to get information from uh, from different places, then the, um, the amount of chatter on the network increases. Um, uh, so this is a problem for clients that want to get a diverse set of information across many, many resources. They uh, and, and they might be on a low bandwidth network. Um, that might be a mobile phone that is rendering an application or a, a, with lots and lots of different pieces. So to uh, reduce the chatter on the network and to make uh, it uh, more straightforward to get all of your information in one shot, uh, there's a, a, a Facebook produced a, a, a language called GraphQL, which allows the client to more uh, be much more specific and detailed in terms of its data requirements. Send it to one service uh, that might, in trying to gather that information up and respond to that request, might go off to a number of other services, but um, or, or could cache or whatever. But produces a uh, a response is typically JSON, uh, which allows the, you know, which is very, very much tailored to a particular client's request. And this is really, really useful when you're writing um, applications or mobile apps where you have views, where you your view only is really ever a subset of, uh, of data across a series of, of resources. So let's maybe try to give an example. So we're talking about Facebook, so why not? Uh, so let's say we have a person who posts, for example, uh, uh, something on their wall, some kind of a post. So how would that be structured sort of on, in an API and what would be the advantage over GraphQL? So what would be the process of getting all of the information from a specific post? Yeah, the, you. so if you were having a Facebook, I mean, I don't use Facebook, so I don't, know what, you, what it looks like. We can go, we can go for another example. <laughs> no, I mean, you know. no, it's, it's a, I mean, let's treat it as an example, but with the caveat that we, neither of us know very much about Facebook, but mm -hmm. I imagine you log into Facebook and you have a news feed of, uh, and you have some friends pictures and you have some notification of people who are wanting to chat to you and, um, all of those elements coming from different resources. So you could, write an application where you go off to each, you know, the newsfeed resource, the friends feed resource, and you integrate them together and you go off to, you know, you could do that, but um, that could be really, really slow. And for the user, it wouldn't be a good experience over mobile and uh, over a, a bad link. Right. So this way you can gather up all the requirements that you want. The first 10 news 
news items from the news feed. You want the, the first 20 friends in this particular order. And then you want to know all of the people who are online at the moment. So you can con mm -hmm. con compose all of those requirements into a single request that can go off to a, a Facebook GraphQL server. And that will respond with just the information you need. So you're not wasting any bandwidth with unnecessary friends that wouldn't ever appear in the view. That's so a very carefully crafted response that would be just for your for your view and the proponents of graphql says say that kind of this is how all things should be that you know should get away from restful resources and we should just be talking to talking graphql everywhere um, and i i think i you know although i i i um i'm quite a fan of graphql in some instances i think it it really its sweet spot is where you already have a graph of data at the center of your organization and you want to write lots and lots of different views or, or, or different applications um, using the same graph and um, that means you only have to write the graph services once and you can then benefit many many times when you're writing applications because everybody get benefits from the same engineering i think in organizations where you have much more point-to-point -point interactions with different microservices the extra cost of building a GraphQL service um, isn't uh, for a small information model, uh, for a small graph, or where you have a situation where you have lots and lots of little graphs and nothing's really joined it, joined up, then I think the costs outweigh the benefits, particularly if you, you're not trying to serve the, the low bandwidth mobile use case. Mm -hmm. Right, so this would mean, uh, just to summarize, so instead of doing like three requests to three different resources, so let's say three gets, we'll just do one GraphQL query. And also, if you want to get any detailed information, we can just nest this instead of, you know, getting the list of the resources and doing following requests for specific items. Exactly. Yeah. Right. And I think there is also, uh, well, maybe not an alternative, but I think uh, at the same time, I think Netflix uh, produced something called Falcor, which had very similar ideas to GraphQL. And I think David Nolan and Closure Community at one point work on the on Next. And I believe this also was in a similar spirit. Uh, and I think there are some other technologies uh, that are emerging. So we have also the lambdas and all the stuff. So how, what are lambdas? Yeah, lambdas are uh, functions that you can deploy in the cloud very cheaply without really having to worry about the infrastructure that it supports. So they're, they're a kind of abstraction on top of infrastructure. Um, it, it means that you don't have to worry about the um the, the elasticity that you know you might have uh, the load balancing and the, the provision of uh, the the hardware to support the peaks and troughs of your load. So you have, there's a number of the, these kind of touted cloud advantages, but being able to uh, support those just at a f pure function level, um, at an mm -hmm. individual service level, then um, those that those lambdas can often be. Uh, I mean, AWS has a technology called API Gateway, which allows you to put a kind of web front end on top of these lambdas. But really, lambdas can be um, really the kind of the base building block. You can put them as consumers of queues, or on, you know, in pub sub conversations, or you can deploy them in um, all kinds of different ways. Kind of maybe as be to be triggered, or web hooks, or you know, they're just really the you know. The bare building block of functionality is the function, and um, it's, mm -hmm. it's really trying to separate the uh, the function itself, the business logic, from the various kind of paraphernalia. Uh, you know, everything we've talked about today, uh, HTTP, is all really about the kind of mechanics of ending up calling a function or uh, an operation. So it's really separating those two things so that you um, you can really focus all your attention on on the business logic itself. Um, and I think there's a, you know, it's a very kind of relevant idea. Um, certainly I, I, I'm, you know, that's, um, it, you know, it's a good thing to be separating things in design. Right. Mm -hmm. You just also mentioned PubSub. Uh, so this is publish subscribe and how would we build on the web, the PubSub model? So, yeah, so, so like subscribe subscriptions. So if you PubSub stands for, you know, pub, being able to publish, data and have potentially multiple subscribers um, subscribing either on a queue or, or tip, more typically a topic. Um, and those are that these uh, PubSub 
interactions are, are great because they're asynchronous. So it doesn't require, uh, doesn't necessarily require systems to be up all the time. They also have uh, this quality of um, not being, you can be a publisher with not any knowledge of your subscribers and vice versa. So that there's this kind of healthy decoupling. Um, and it's a very common um, uh, application pattern inside organizations and it works and so a lot of people try to like copy that uh into you know the web area so the um particularly subscriptions which is where you have this continually continual flow of updates um so rather than having to uh re-request for uh, uh the state of a resource you you might say well i want to get the initial state and i want to be told whenever that state changes um, and so there are some little mechanisms in um, HTTP that almost allow this I mean they're not massively sophisticated but one is um, built into most browsers called server sent events so there's a very primitive kind of protocol um, which has the you know the very minimum uh, of that the browser will reconnect if the connection fails it will kind of silently reconnect but it means as an application you can get a, a stream of updates not necessarily guaranteed uh, you might you know lose some but as long as you can you you can cope with that then you can get told when something changes through a, through a little message so you can build use that to build some sort of primitive uh you know, chat systems and update you know you can get your, your browser application can be uh, updated in real time without having to go back, the browser having to go back and you know, recreate uh, recreate the whole re request response cycle again. Um, and particularly when you're, you're dealing with uh, code, JavaScript code and applications, what might be called single page applications, which are very expensive to create on a response. You want, don't want to continually be using the request response of the browser. So these little kind of either server sent events or web sockets can be a great way of uh, retaining a, co a communication, uh, an asynchronous communication with the server to get kind of live updates. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned SSE and then you also mentioned briefly like web sockets. So like what would be the main uh, difference between those two? The, the main difference is that server sent events happen over the HTTP channel itself. So all the, the um, a server sent event communication is, is established with an HTTP request and mm -hmm. the, the request has headers and uh, is subject to um, uh, authorization, authentication and all those things that are all you've already built in for all your other resources. Is you, All those are inherited with server sent events. With WebSockets, it's a change of protocol. So the HTTP servers will, the HTTP user agent will um, establish a new type of protocol, uh, which could be undefined, to the server and say, okay, now we're going to move to this new protocol I've just invented. And so it does mean that the clients and the servers have uh, then have to agree on a contract. You're going back to the, the uh, you know, the interface definition language days, uh, and you're going you're to have to control both endpoints. Um, but it does have this uh, the advantage to allowing you to do anything you could do over a TCP socket. So asynchronous communication, they can both be talking at the same time and um, bi-directional. Um, right. So the server send event, uh, this will be sent to us uh, from the server. And then if you would like to, of course, do this over HTTP, we would send like a post. Yeah. And this would be the both direction and the web socket will be bi-directional. Well, Yes, I mean it, it's not that the you can't achieve bidirectional communication in a, a in a server sent event context because you you can just simply send posts or puts or anything to to the same server. So you can achieve the same. Um, it, it, I mean, whether you're doing it over the same socket, um, you know, is really a kind of bit of a technical difference um, from an application point of view. They're the same, and and of course with web sockets, you still establishing a WebSocket, you can still leverage all the kind of authentication authorization uh, and right. you know that you've you've already established so you, you 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 don't have to build all that again necessarily but as soon as you've established the socket and uh, then all subsequent interactions are you know uh, you're really having to define the protocol 
yourself, and that would be a very you know proprietary protocol. So there are, there are games that would use that. That you know, is often the case where you 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 control both the game on the client and the game server, and you can uh, you can define your own protocol. So there there is is definitely different applications sweet spots for these things. Okay. Uh, so now we have all of those protocols and specifications and all what we talked about. What would be uh, the patterns for building web servers? Yeah, I, I, so what uh, libraries we use to write services, um, many libraries are la uh, allow um, a lot of choice and flexibility and control. And often the, those... Um, so there's a very useful pattern in building services, which is using higher order functions or, or middleware, um, where you, you remember our conversation about lambdas, which is to have these pure things that mm -hmm. will, uh, pure functions that will only do the business logic. And you can uh, take that and call it what well, we call that a handler, and then you can wrap it in um, in other functions. So that it, in other lambdas that would um, would intercept the request and would do something perhaps on that request and then delegate that request to the, the underlying Lambda or function. Um, and uh, in reverse, when that Lambda function returns a response, might decide to mutate, change that response in some way before handing it up the chain. So there's a, there's a nice pattern that's used in Python and Ruby and closure and a number of others where you use functions the, the idea and, and function wrapping particularly in languages that support higher order functions which is this idea you can take functions as parameters and return them as return values and um, those languages support this pattern really well um, there's another pattern which is similar which is around interceptors where um, it isn't so much that the functions are built up as a kind of call stack um, that these th these functions sort of independent and they are in chains and they can potentially change the chains as the, the request goes through. So they're kind of even more flexible. Um, th these patterns are a way of building kind of cherry picking functionality that you might want in you know, a security on one resource or you might want connection consent negotiation on another. Um, the downside is that they leave a lot of work for the programmer to do the, the selection of the the different sets of ring middleware, composing them together in the right order, making sure that there's kind of no dependencies between them. And uh, you know, just generally the assembly of these very, very small units can be error prone and difficult. So um, that's the downside. They give a lot of flexibility and control, but they don't make it very easy. And they leave quite a lot of work still for the application developer, particularly when the application developer is trying to create a full featured HTTP service. So I think, I think the downside of using these tiny little modular components is that you you end up not really uh, creating http conformant services you you tend to write ones that are very um play sort of fast and loose yeah they're very bare bones and it means that there's never a business prerogative to make them anything you know more than bare bones i mean often they they just survive and they just become um deployed and therefore all of the um, all of the parts of the specification on which REST and hypermedia APIs is predicated on, i.e. good status of code, uh, content negotiation, semantics of methods, status code generation, generating the right status codes in the right circumstances, all those clues that can be used by user agent to navigate and follow road signs, those are all missing. Um, so that that actually takes away the potential to use hypermedia, which is which is a real shame because hypermedia I think will be around for a long time because it is it is a very very good approach to building services that last in time. I think the current fashion for building services of moving fast and breaking things and writing MVPs and putting up services very very quickly that is the fashion today because there's a big you know masses of people migrating towards web services, web APIs. Um, but in the future, the onus will be more on how do we, uh, you know, reduce spend. We can't have development teams continually maintaining services. How do we put services up that don't need to be maintained uh, so, so, um, so much? So then uh, we'll 
begin to start looking for patterns and techniques to allow us to evolve larger systems over time. So when things begin to slow down and we're looking for more longevity and even vulnerability, I, I think that these ideas of rest will come back to the fore. Um, so I, I don't think we should sort of uh, kind of embrace open API and, you know, IDL approaches and, um, and kind of the very bare bones services that we were talking about. I, I think there is still a place for building highly conformant absolutely kind of to the letter of a specification services that you know completely fulfill the the contracts in http and then allow the clients to be much more dynamic um, i think those services would be less brittle and longer lived and i think that that is a, be a better place to be long term mm -hmm. yeah i this is great so i'm actually thinking that we're coming to a conclusion of the episode and how about we just mention a couple of sort of uh, frameworks slash libraries that we have in Clojure for building those. So we can talk about, so we can say there is a Dact from James Reeves, there is Pedestal, uh, there is Apex, of course, uh, not Apex, the, uh, this is what I know from Dominic he yeah. this last time. So, uh, and then there is Polylith also. Uh, so maybe you can just mention that, by the way, I know you're working on this new framework from replacing Yada, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, right. When do you when do you plan to like go live with this? I think I'll, uh, it will be in alpha by Christmas. So there's there's already okay. it's quite a lot that has been done. Um, okay. But I, I mean, I can mention in in the closure world, we have um, a very uh, sound starting point, which is Ring, which yeah. uh, Ring is mm -hmm. a, right. a, a set of middleware, but it's also established a data structure for the request and the response, which is super useful. So mm -hmm. uh, right. it, it does a, it, so, Ring is always going to be yeah, with so. us. And, and I think, and also just to, to mention Ring um, used to come into some criticism that it only supported synchronous style of programming, which is where uh, you, you in the same thread are calling all these middleware. So you're wrapping all these middlewares together. Um, whereas things like pedestal, uh, you know, interceptor approaches of which medicine have a, have a kind of see Apache, I think it's called, um, different, you know, mm -hmm. interceptor, uh, are not tied to the thread. Um, and you can run these interceptors in different threads. Um, but ring, I, I should mention has, uh, James Reeves has, uh, in the last three or four years added asynchronous, uh, support to ring and it's it's really quite capable so i think that's that's mm -hmm. um it's not necessary if you need asynchronous anymore to to have to use so, pedestal what would be the libraries we should look at when we want to build backend servers with closure so enclosure is is fortunate to have a lot of choices in for web APIs. Um, it starts with ring and a lot of things are built on ring uh, a ring establishes the request and response format that uh, integrates with web servers. So all these frameworks are kind of utilizing Java web servers that already exist, um, like Jetty and Netty and WebLogic and uh, Undertow and uh, a bunch of others. So the, it's, it just starts with Ring, and then we've got uh, Composure, which is kind of more to do with kind of booting plus Ring middleware. Then we have Duct, which is um, uh, the pedestal, which is uh, came from Cognitect and Vase, and there's Polylith, um, then uh, Reatit, which is a kind of more fully fledged router plus um, coercions plus uh, content negotiation and montage. So there's a there's a whole bunch of stack from uh, Metosyn, and then there's the sort of uh, the ones that have more batteries included that try to kind of be more conformant with HTTP itself, that's Liberator, Yada, and Apex. And then we look at ones that are much more around uh, extending that to be supporting full application end-to-end. -end. So so um, that would be full Crow and uh, kind of Luminous as well, which is kind of a way of uh, putting together the, the, you know the, a stack of of uh, you know to give a batteries included um web development experience great yeah and i think during the season we will look at all of them so 
yeah Malcolm, thank you so much again for being here and explaining everything about uh, web development thank you very much Jacek it's been good to have uh, be on the show if you find this podcast valuable there are many ways you can support it you can review it on iTunes or any other platform you're listening to you can share it on social media with your friends you can blog about it discuss it on your own podcast and you can support it directly by buying my video courses and learning ClojureScript and Clojure at my website, jacekshe.com. That's J-A-C-E-K-S-C-H-A-E.com. Thank you for your support of this show.